Would you turn to Psalm 76? Psalm 76. This song, Psalm, occupies quite a bit of time on the theme of God's judgment. And it's following, numerically, obviously, Psalm 75, which was the plea for God's judgment. And so we see the answer to that plea for God's judgment to take place coming about in Psalm 76 as it looks forward to a climactic event of judgment. And as we look at this psalm, there's a couple of points in in which the psalmist stands back and is in marvel of the very nature and character of who God is, and it's overwhelming to him. And so as we look at this psalm tonight, I want to just simply ask this question is, what does it mean to stand in awe of God's presence? Well, the psalmist tells us that by reflecting on the very nature of God, not only looking at some of the attributes of God, but also looking at the consequence of God's attributes and how that affects and how that plays itself out in his providence in human history. And so as we reflect upon this, the very most important thing that we can know is God, and to know correctly who God is as God has revealed himself in his book. This psalm instructs us on how to rightly think about God and our response to him. So let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you. More majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is the reading of God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. We see three movements that take place. The first three verses is just a simple statement that God is known by his presence. And that's in the first three verses. And then verses 4 through 10, we see a statement of God's 
fearsome judgment that is going to come upon earth. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see a call to praise God and to fear Him in recognition of who He is. But it begins with a statement that God is known. And what I want you to notice in these first just two verses, there's four places mentioned. He's known in Judah, Israel, Salem, which is just short for Jerusalem. And he's known in Zion. We shouldn't think of this as God is known in part in these different places, but rather this is just speaking of the fullness of His presence with His people, that He is, he is known by His people. And this, this word known, it, it's, it's to know Him with an assurance of His presence with the people of God. And so this is speaking about God in, in, in some tangible way manifesting Himself to His people. And it's come about, as we've read the text, through some sort of special deliverance by which God had delivered His people, some military battle. What the exact historical event is, is, is impossible to know with certainty, but it is that God has revealed Himself to His people through some sort of military event, and they're now looking at it and saying, Our God is with us. God has brought judgment. Now, last time we looked at Psalm 75, where the people are are wondering, when will God bring judgment? And we read these very sobering words that God's judgment comes in His own time. 75 verse 2 says this, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. So when will God bring His judgment? When will God act? Well, in His time He will do it. A time that He is appointed is when He will act. And so in Psalm 76, it's the response that God has in fact acted. God has brought judgment. God has responded to the pleas of His people. And they now say, God is known. And notice what it says is his name is great in Israel. So the fact that God is known, it results in praise. And when we think of the word great, think of it in the terms of size, the size of something. If you were to look at the Empire State Building, you would say that is a great building by the sheer size of it. And so you see the Grand Canyon, and you see that as something that is great because of the sheer size of it. So it's speaking of the size of something. And so how we understand this, that His name is great in Israel, is this. There is a mass amount of people that are holding the Lord's name in esteem. And so it's speaking of the greatness, if you will, of revival that is taking place in the land. God has made himself known. God has delivered delivered his people. And as a result of that, there's now a revival that is taking place. His presence has driven away the enemies and has resulted in a revival amongst the people. God makes himself known for the preservation of his people. It is God's mercy to make himself known and his presence to dwell with his people. 
And so he reveals himself in, to his people that are in desperation. He reveals himself to them for their sake and for their very comfort. God comes to his people. And now you think about this, it, was, it resulted in a very tangible manner for Israel. They pray to God, they're repentant before God, and God rescues them, and we'll see, in an inexplicable manner. But do you think about what we have is where if we are in some sort of trouble and we pray to God, God doesn't just come and fix our problems, but the Lord Jesus tells us this, that the triune God dwells with his people and is a means of comfort for his people. We have the Spirit of God dwelling with us. That God never leaves and never forsakes His people. We don't need a tangible rescue. We have the Word of God that tells us, I am with you and I will never forsake you. This is to bring comfort to His people. This is to deliver His people. That He reveals His glory to His people. Calvin makes this very interesting remark. He says, quote, As the church is a distinguished theater on which the divine glory is displayed, we must always take the greatest care not to shroud or bury in forgetfulness by our ingratitude the benefits which have been bestowed upon it, and especially those which ought to be held in temperance in all ages. What is Calvin saying? Is he is saying that the church itself is a theater for his glory, and we ought not to take that for granted. That his presence is with his people. And we ought to hold that with the greatest care that the triune God dwells with his people. This is what it means when it says in verse 2, His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Now, God is omnipresent. God who brought all things into existence is everywhere, all at once. But this is speaking of God's special presence. If you could think of it in this term, a concentrated presence of God with his people, dwelling in their midst. This is that reestablishment of what was lost in the garden, where God dwells with his people, where God walks with his people. And as his presence is there amongst his people, and his people are are being attacked, his people are are suffering, we read this in verse 3, there... That's that's speaking at that place of where God is dwelling with his people. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. And so you see that connection between deliverance and God's presence with his people. And that word broke, it means to smash something into pieces where it's irreparable. And what we see are these weapons of war, these things that would be frightful to us, that God just simply destroys them. And it's speaking of God's omnipotent power, that God is all-powerful. 
and that mighty armies with the greatest outfitting of weaponry is, is nothing to God. And he just simply destroys it. He breaks it into pieces for the sake of his people to comfort them in their time of need. You think about what we are told of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has crushed the head of the serpent. Our greatest enemy. Our greatest struggles. The bonds of sin. In which we're told that Christ actually breaks those chains that we were once trapped in. Those things that are so strong and so powerful in our life, Christ actually breaks those things that we have. So God's fearsome judgment comes in verse 4. And look at how this is brought about. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains, full of prey. The psalmist is reflecting upon the nature of God based upon what God has done. God has revealed himself through these special acts. And as he sits back, he reflects. And there's two statements of God. The first is that God is glorious. Glorious. And in some translations, it's resplendent. The NIV says something to the effect of his light shines. And that's actually a very good translation. Because this word glorious here, it means to emit light. It means to shine. Let me give you an example of of how it's used. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And that, that give light is that same phrase that's translated here as glorious. In fact, as far as I can tell, this is the only place that it's translated glorious. And typically, for the word glory, think of when Moses says, show me your glory in Exodus. It's, it's another word that refers to heaviness or the weight of something. And it's to show me the weightiness of who you are. But here, this that's translated glory is something different. It's speaking of a light. Now think about how John in his first letter describes God. He simply says that God is light. This is the same book in which we read that God is love, from which we understand in the nature of God's attributes, they're not divided, they're not parts. God's not part light. God's not part love, but God is love. He is the fullness of love. God is the fullness of light. He is light. He is the essence of it. And so what this is speaking of is God's moral purity, that God is pure. Pure are you. Light are you. Glorious are you. Then he goes on to say, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Now that, that, that word majestic 
It means sometimes magnificent. It can mean beautiful. It is all sorts of words that accompany that term majestic. We, we would be probably hesitant to say that something is majestic. It's not a word we use often unless something really grasps us and we say, wow, that is truly majestic. It comes in the comparative. That is that he's majestic more than the mountains of prey. And there's, there's various ideas of what the mountains of prey refers to, but it, it likely refers to kingdoms that are known for their size and gaining their size through violent takeover. So you think how we stand impressed of powerful nations, powerful kingdoms that have acquired their power, they have acquired their greatness, they have acquired what they have, their wealth, through violent means. And those type of kingdoms, there's a certain fearfulness to those kingdoms. You stand in awe of those kingdoms, and you stand in awe of those that are the leaders of those kingdoms. And so what it's saying here is by comparison, God is more majestic than the most powerful thing that we could see here on this earth. God is greater than all of that. And it inspires awe. So the power and the might of God leads to great awe more so than the most fearsome kingdoms on the earth. We are impressed by powerful people. We're impressed by power. You see people clamor to those that may seem to be powerful, wealthy, or they cater to them. They treat them differently, hoping to be noticed or desired by them. Why is that? Because they're impressed by what they have. Think about that for a second, how we're so easily impressed by the powerful of this world, but yet the one that called all things into existence maintains all things that are in existence and will conclude all things that are in existence, we discard We don't ever reflect upon the very nature of God's majesty. But we're quick to reflect upon the majesty of those things that are here on this earth. So rather than being impressed by God's providence, we're more impressed by those that are Maintained by God's providence. I think this teaches us, as the psalmist is doing, just by the comparison, he's obviously writing this, thinking about the great things of this earth. And as he thinks about the great things of this earth, he says, God, you're greater than them. This is a call for us to to think upon the very nature of God, to reflect upon the majestic nature of God, to meditate upon God as God has revealed himself. You know, contextually, this realization comes when God breaks apart 
the enemy. It's sometimes hard to stop and think about things because we have so much we have to do. I mean, you have to check your Twitter account. You have to check your Facebook. You have to make sure everything's in line for work. We have all of these things we've got to do. We're constantly busy. Who has time to stop and think? Who has time to stop and think about something that is infinitely greater than us that we can't even comprehend if we did stop to think about it. Stephen Sharnock was a Puritan. He was a contemporary of John Owen, was born in London, 1628, and died in 1680, professor at Oxford. He wrote one of the greatest books on the attributes of God. It was called Discourses on the Existence and Attributes of God. Massive work, if I, if I can say so. It was a majestic work. And one of the greatest works on the very nature of God that's ever been produced by the pen of mankind. And when he gets to this idea of the, of the majesty of God, he makes this point about our thoughts when we think about our God. He says, we are not focused on the majesty of God if our thoughts in any way are trivial when we consider God. Think about that. He says, our thoughts, whenever our thoughts are risen to the God of the universe, they have to be, as he says, awful thoughts. A-W-E-F-U-L, awful thoughts. And if they're not, we're not contemplating the majesty of who God is. In other words, what Sharnock's getting at is here is this, is our very thoughts of God, when we raise our thoughts to God, they have to be Thoughts that are higher. Why? Because God is in heaven, as Ecclesiastes teaches us. He says if we listen to God's word without reverence, think about that. How often is the word of God read, either in a worship service or if we're reading it ourselves, and, and, and it's just we're just reading it because it's out of habit, and I know that sometimes we do that, and uh, that's, that's, at least sometimes I do that. What Sharnock is saying here when he says, even when we hear God's word read, if we don't do it with reverence, we're not respecting the majesty of God. He says positively what we have to do is we have to nourish right thoughts about God. Nourish them, and I love that puritanical language of nourishing right thoughts about God. And how do we nourish right thoughts about God? By His Word. And he says when you do, do this, this affects He says, your affections. The Puritans would use the word affections for the word, but we use passion. So they would use the word affections. This stirs the affections of the human soul to nourish our thoughts on the majesty of God. 
I think that that's what our psalmist is doing. I think that when Asaph writes this psalm, he's nourishing his thoughts on the very majesty and the very glory of God as he stands in awe of God. What's the practical takeaway? That's it. That's it. Stop and think about God. Not who we conceive God to be with our darkened mind, but conceive of who God is as He has revealed Himself perfectly in His two books. The book of nature, for the very stars declare the glory of God and His most perfect and errant book, the Bible. Notice how he continues to reflect upon this glory and this majesty of God. In verse 5 it says, The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. And, And so it speaks of God's power being worked out in a mysterious way that they sank into a sleep as speaking of their their uh, death. When it says they couldn't use their hands, it's speaking of that they, they have no power before this glorious, majestic God. When it says they sank into the sleep, they're dead is what it's referring to. And it says all the men of war are cast into this death. And all of this points to the, the, the powerlessness of man. Consider our boldness before God when we sin and we think we get away with it. This God who breaks apart the flaming arrows and the shields of the armies. Notice God, the majestic warrior, uses his word to destroy the wicked in verse 6. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. In some translations, it, it reads just that they slept again. They lay slept out, or they were cast into a deep sleep. And that is, again, their, their death. And this just comes simply by God's word. And so this is getting into that judgment. When will you judge, O God? I will judge when I want to. Well, God's judgment has come. And how does it come about? God's judgment comes about by His word. It comes about through His Word. And so there's a comparison here between God's power and the power of man, and yet God just simply speaks and His enemies are destroyed. What results in that? He says, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused. That word feared is to make tremble. And it's a, it's a rhetorical question. Who, who can stand before you when your anger is roused? No one. And this context is of God's judgment, of God's presence. So just think about this for a second. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? Every smug look, every blasphemous statement, every evil rejection of God's authority will one day be wiped out. And when will it be wiped out? Notice what the text says. Once your anger is roused. 
And in God's providence, we have two sermons in which we deal with God's wrath today. Not to repeat everything that was said this morning of God's wrath, but what is God's wrath? His anger, His fury. It is what comes from His holiness, His righteousness, His love. God's wrath, as we said this morning, and as we should know, God's wrath is not an attribute of God. It is the consequence of His righteousness, His holiness, and His love. Not only a love for His own glory, but His love for justice and righteousness and holiness. His wrath is the necessary consequence. It is God's immutable will to punish anything that is unholy. His immutable will. In other words, it never changes. Now, just for clarification, we we can't view God's anger and wrath as like ours. God doesn't view punishing people as something he enjoys. And this is why Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live and turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't take pleasure. He doesn't rejoice over the, 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 the manifestation of his wrath. But, and listen, Joel Beakey says this, he rejoices in his righteousness and justice when he executes the law's curse upon sinners. That's an important distinction. And so that God, God doesn't enjoy that punishment, but God rejoices in his righteousness and justice as he executes his justice. And as God's anger, God's wrath, it's immutable. And this is that his view of sin and his response of sin never changes. So why is hell eternal? Because those that are in hell are never coded with the righteousness of Christ. And so therefore, for all of eternity, they must be punished because of God's immutable righteousness and justice. It's a heavy thought. But God's wrath, God's anger, it's a, it's a just anger in ways that actually should bring us comfort. Well, how would that bring us comfort? Let me give you an example of God's justice displayed in a way. Notice this. In Exodus 22, 22, it says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Would we all say amen to that as being righteous and, and, and something that we would say that is a good law? Amen, we would. So listen to God's justice in this. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath. 
My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. God's wrath is always just. God's wrath is always perfect. God's wrath is displayed in ways that should actually bring us comfort. Because it's not like our wrath where it's uncontrolled. Further, we see that God's wrath is all-consuming. In Psalm 21, 9, he says, You will make them as a blazing oven when you peer. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire will consume them. It's all-consuming. It's an all-encompassing wrath. In Deuteronomy 32, in verse 22, says, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. That's, that's the grave. That's the place of the dead. It devours the earth and its increase and sets the fire, the mountains, the foundations of the mountains. So notice what, how, how Moses says this, is that God's wrath not only goes below, but it goes above. It's all-encompassing of all things. But there's also this wonderful reality that we have of God's wrath And it's this, is that we're told that the Lord is slow to execute His wrath. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger. Do we deserve the Lord to be slow to anger? We don't at all. In fact, it's it's a great mystery to us why the Lord doesn't just take us out. Why He didn't just end this whole thing right after Adam rebelled against him, this thing that was made from dirt that thought it would rebel against the God that created him. Because God's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding, rather. Notice what it says, slow to anger, but he's abounding. He has much of this, of this steadfast love, and he's forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he's just. He will no, by no means clear the guilty. It will by no means clear the guilty. So how do we respond to this as the psalmist is reflecting not only upon this glorious majesty of God, but then the psalmist is looking at God's judgment and it necessarily goes to God's wrath and he reflects upon that. How do we respond to that? Look at verse 8. From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. That the recognition that that God is judge of all things will silence all mouths to stand in awe. Those that will stand before God in judgment will recognize His absolute purity and His right to judge. They'll recognize their guilt before the great judge of the universe and will fall silent before Him. What a glorious thought. Verse 9, when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. See, in his judgment, there's also coming his judgment of salvation. We see mercy. We see the fear of God all in one climactic moment. 
That's how we should view God's ultimate judgment is a judgment and rescue. God's mercy and God's the fear of God all in one swift moment. Because God's judgment is also his deliverance. And notice who it is that's delivered. It's of the humble. That's who's delivered, the humble. That word humble means to be bowed down. Think think about this for a second. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart. Those are the ones that are called sons of God. Those are the ones that are said to will inherit the earth. Those are the ones that the Lord counts as righteous. Who are these people? You know, Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 3 gives us a clue as we try to understand this from this Old Testament perspective because it's no different than the New Testament perspective. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Who is it that's the humble? It's those that have been made righteous through faith by God's grace. Who are those that seek after the Lord? Because the scripture elsewhere tells us none seek after me. It's those that have experienced the grace of God and thus have faith. We're told elsewhere that the Lord leads the way of the humble. This is those, when it says that the Lord will rescue the humble, this is nothing else than a statement of those that have been made humble by the Lord's grace. Those that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the psalmist would have looked forward to the end time judgment when the anointed one would come and bring a final climactic judgment. He looks towards that one and says that's where we have our salvation. What is the result of this judgment? Look at verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So previously it says they will all be silenced. But then now here it says that the wicked will even praise God for his justice. And then he puts them on like a belt. Other translation says he girds up his loins with them. It's saying that he uses them, the wicked, to accomplish his will. The wicked will be forced to admit that God is all-powerful. Consider how we reflected upon his glorious majesty. Think of how we considered the might of his power in contrast to the vastness of earthly kingdoms. Well, there comes a day where those wicked will recognize the very thing that the psalmist has already known. There will come a day when they will understand what, if 
you are in Christ, you already know. And if it's something that we already know, how much more ought we to think about it? That God is glorious, God is majestic, that he is holy and righteous and will execute his wrath, and there is coming a day of judgment. And so it concludes with this, a call that God is to be feared. Verse 11 Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. This is a a call to come to God. And in many ways, it reminds us of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, if you'll remember, Psalm 2 is the psalmist is asking the question, why are the nations raging against God? Because God sits in the heavens and laughs at them. And Psalm 2 then ends with this instruction. It says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with him trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a call to kiss the Son, which is that is you are to trust in the Son. You are to pay homage to the Son. You are to honor the Son is what the call is to do. This king who is a righteous king that will one day come and return and execute judgment. We're called to go before him. There's a final reminder. Just in case we forgot, verse 12. Not only is he to be feared, but who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the king's of the earth. It's a final reminder that God will cut off the wicked and even they will praise him. This is speaking overall of the great day of judgment. In many ways, the psalmist looks back upon God's deliverance and how God has brought judgment in Judah to rescue his people. He has brought judgment upon the enemies. And he he starts there. But then, if you will, it telescopes out to the future when the final day of judgment comes. It looks to a final climactic end. The great day of judgment. The day of the Lord. It's a look at the end. And we see that the Lord Jesus will one day judge the earth in his righteousness. His power, his might, his majesty, his glory will be all-consuming. The climactic end of history is the judgment that Christ will bring. That judgment that Christ will bring upon the earth where he will also rescue the humble. And so what are we to do? Well, Psalm 2 tells us to kiss the sun. That's our call, to go to the sun. To go to the sun and seek his mercy. And by seeking his mercy and by seeking him in his grace, that is the first fruit of being regenerate.
is because that which we are never, never could be said of us that we are humble is the first fruit of regeneration, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A humility of spirit weakened by our sin, poor in spirit because we recognize we're sinners, mourning. And why are we blessed if we mourn? Because we mourn over the depth of our sin. So blessed are the righteousness. Because they don't have a righteousness of their own, but they have the righteousness of Christ that they have seeked humbly. Purely by his grace. We are called to seek his grace. To sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and pay homage to our great King who will come with an all-consuming fury upon his enemies and an abounding love for his people. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a sober reminder that we have been given of your might, of your power, of your majesty. Father, may your grace be upon us that we would stop to reflect about who you are. That we would stop to think upon you as you've been revealed in your word, as you've revealed yourself to us. Father, it's easy with our minds that are so often afflicted with thoughts that we, we don't like. So often we're distracted by the things of this world that we rarely stop to even pray. We rarely stop to pick up your word and truly soak it up to cherish it. And so, Father, give us the desires of our heart, that our desires would be your word. Father, I pray that we would nourish our thoughts with your word, that we would soak in your words, that they would meritate in our soul. Father, as we depart from here, this day, this Lord's Day set aside by you, celebration of the resurrection of your Son, we have to live Monday through Saturday. How quickly we forget of your grace and your glorious truths of the gospel that have set us free. So we pray your Spirit's work to be working in us through this week. We may not forget the glorious truths that your word reveals of you. We pray that as we approach this week that you will ever be on our mind, that we will reflect daily upon the gospel that has set us free, that we will be thankful for the righteousness of Christ. We would be thankful for the holiness without which no one sees you. We would be thankful for the work of Christ and the work of your Spirit. We need your grace for this, for we are desperately in need of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.